When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. If anyone's going to lose his marbles, it is the Prime Minister. Four. The thing about Keir is that he's brilliant at addressing the judge, but not so great at addressing the jury. Three. Yeah, moderate people in Ireland are telling pollsters that they think there's too much immigration. I think it is mass migration to blame, and I think the authorities are running scared. One. We have left off. Welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. In Dublin's fair city, where the girls are so pretty, we saw riots on the street last week. That street violence in Parnell Square in the heart of the Irish capital followed the stabbing of three children and a school care assistant outside a primary school. The lone suspect, who remains in hospital under armed guard awaiting interview, arrived in Ireland from Algeria around 20 years ago. He's now a naturalised Irish citizen. More riot police were deployed to deal with last Thursday's riots than at any time in the Republic of Ireland's history. That, according to the country's justice minister. Irish teacher Glia Varadkar said the 500 or so rioters had, quotes, brought shame on Ireland. There were 34 arrests after vehicles were set alight and shops looted. Yet public concern about immigration in Ireland is now a reality that much of the country's political media class has been trying to ignore. That will now be much tougher. Aside from that, Alison, you went to a demonstration against anti-Semitism in central London and met countless Planet Normal listeners. And those UK immigration numbers you warned about when we recorded last week turned out to be astonishingly high, with net immigration hitting a record high of 745,000 last year. Around 15% of those living in the UK are now born overseas, Alison. Yet in the Republic of Ireland, the figure's almost 20%. Yes, before we plunge into those deep waters, Halligan, I think we should point out that what has really been concerning our Prime Minister this week, who, when he was confronted about the immigration, the astonishingly high immigration figures, said he was busy getting on with delivering. Now, he didn't specify what he was delivering, Pizzas, some people suggested. Black <laughs> Friday deals from Amazon, perhaps. But yes, Rishi Sunak, even by his standards, has had a sort of calamitous week focusing on trees. I mean, we all like trees, but that's probably not near the top of anybody's list. And the Elgin marbles. And if anyone's going to lose his marbles, it is the Prime Minister. Yes, Liam, I mean, obviously we talked last week a bit, didn't we, before we knew the exact immigration figures. We suspected that they would be quite high, but nowhere near as high as they actually turned out to be with the 2022 figure also, which had been 606,000 being revised upwards to about 740,000. And there's no place to hide now from these truly astonishing numbers coming in. And I mean, that there's a huge amount to say here, but we could start. First of all, I think we can say that the events in Israel have proved to be a Pandora's box because they've triggered the weekly now Saturday pro-Palestine march. As you said, I went on the sort of sister march, which was the anti-Semitism march on Sunday, which we'll come to later. But these marches, I think, have shone a spotlight on concerns in the UK about sections of our society which may owe loyalties to foreign entities, particularly as some of the organisers of that pro-Palestine march, I think three of the six groups organising them have been proved to have links to Hamas and indeed some actual members of Hamas. I think this has sort of stirred the pot, Liam. I think these concerns have been bubbling beneath the surface, but I think they're really boiling up now with a kind of fury. And we saw that 
erupt as you described on the streets of Dublin. Those little children and their carer were stabbed in a crazed knife attack, allegedly by this guy that you described. Still some things about that person unknown, but has been suggested that this man was scheduled for deportation in 2003, but won the right to remain in the high court. So what happened after the riots? In fact, what happened after the horrifying attacks on these tiny children was we saw the Irish establishment swinging into full defensive mode. And after the riots, the Garda Commissioner Drew Harris condemned the disgraceful scenes in Dublin, claiming that a hooligan faction driven by far-right ideology was behind the violence on the streets. Now, there's a few things that jumped out at me, Liam. It is certainly true that a lot of opportunistic yobs piled in looting shops and setting fire to vehicles, disgraceful scenes. Um, But it's also true, and I've been doing quite a lot of research into this, that previously there had been scores, not just of peaceful protests, not just in Dublin, but across Ireland, initially triggered by the revelation that thousands of asylum seekers had come to the country but had destroyed their passports. So all of this is coming to a head. And I began my column, which you'll be able to look at in the show notes, describing some Irish mums, mammies, actually, Irish mammies, I came across in the summer, saw them online protesting because 60 undocumented male asylum seekers were about to be dropped on their community. And these very, very strong, great women, I thought, I really warmed to them, said, we come out and stand here and protest to keep our children and grandchildren safe. And we are called racist. People are afraid. There is no one coming to speak to us. All the political parties do is use Facebook to call frightened women racist and bullies. And I am suggesting, Liam, that this incredible high levels of migration are causing huge problems and the ruling elites who have inflicted this situation on the civilian population are now blaming it on something called the far right. I don't think those Irish women sticking up for their children are far right. I think it is mass migration to blame and I think the authorities are running scared. There's a huge amount to unpack here. Obviously, this is something that I've followed very, very closely. My eldest daughter lives in Dublin, as you know. I know the city very well. Obviously, I'm not as steeped in Irish politics and current affairs as I am in the UK equivalent, but I do follow what's going on pretty closely. And I'd say this. This has been an accident waiting to happen for some time. You have an Irish political and media class which, having thrown off the kind of strictures and the scripture, if you like, of the Catholic Church has reinvented Ireland as a very moderate, liberal, outward-looking, modern European country. Now, parts of some of the big cities are like that, but an awful lot of rural Ireland is is not like that. And yet an awful lot of the views in rural Ireland and sort of suburban Ireland and lower-income Ireland, if you like, aren't particularly well represented in the main newspapers and by the national broadcasters. That's a problem we've got here in the UK, but I think in Ireland, Mm. and I say this with huge regret about a country I adore, the problem's probably even worse. The gap between common perceptions and attitudes and the sort of political and media class in Ireland, it's pretty big here and getting bigger, but in Ireland, I would say with regret, it's even bigger. Now, it strikes me that this issue of mass immigration into Ireland is very, very difficult for many Irish people to get their heads around because, of course, in the back of their minds is the fact that over many, many years, generations and centuries, countless Irish people have gone all across the world Mm. and built things and made good and created companies and, and so on. But I think there's also a kind of counter view among Irish people. And, of course, I don't speak for all Irish people at all. I don't claim to. But there's also a counter view among certainly lots of blue collar Irish people. Yeah, but we went there and we dug tunnels and we built roads and we built infrastructure and we were paid and we paid our taxes. And right, we were known for our sometimes bawdy behavior and, and so on. 
unfairly many Irish people would say, but at least they did something and contributed something. And there's a sense, fairly or unfairly, rightly or wrongly, accurately or inaccurately, that quite a lot of the immigrants we've seen coming to Ireland, I mean, while many of them contribute hugely and to, you know, to go to Dublin or Galway these days, you may be served by a chirpy Irish person behind the bar, but you could equally be served by someone from Lithuania, Moldova, Spain, France, Poland. It's increasingly a multicultural place. And yet there's a sense that quite a lot of the immigrants aren't really doing anything. They're on benefits. They're squeezing the system. They're taking without giving. And that really sticks in the craw of a lot of Irish people. And the fact that their views aren't reflected at all in many of the papers and on the national papers has led to a kind of situation. And in a country where violence on the streets is actually incredibly rare, where the murder rate is about a quarter of what it is in the UK, very, very low, they're just not used to these kind of explosions of violence on the streets. More riot police used than at any time in the Republic of Ireland's history, of course, which, of course, is a relatively short history. Republic of Ireland was created at the end of the 1940s, of course. But still, this is such a big event. And also Irish people, I've talked to lots of Irish people in the last few days since last Thursday. They're astonished and ashamed that this is leading the news around the world. This isn't good for sort of Brand Island. Brand Island is, you know, a thousand welcomes. Brand Island is amazing scenery and incredible fishing and warm pubs and, you know, incredible virtuosity with music and song and poetry and a country that lives its culture and is proud of its culture. These are the kind of things that the Irish would usually see on the streets of London and kind of tut tut under their breath at. And yet now it's happening on the streets of Dublin. And I genuinely believe that the political and media class in Ireland is going to have to react because it's not right to just dismiss this as a spasm of a bunch of political extremists. Of course, there were many, many opportunistic people looting and, and, and so on. And in every country and every city and town in the world, there's going to be a rent a crown mob. But now, you know, moderate people in Ireland are telling pollsters that they think there's too much immigration. I feel really, really angry about it, Liam, because what we're seeing, not just with the Irish authorities, but with our own government and our own police. So the only problem Varadkar and the Irish authorities were prepared to admit had been caused by this vast number of migrant arrivals is a rise in anti-immigrant sentiment. So who gets blamed? It's literally, we're going to drop lots of these people on you. They don't have any passports or any documents. We don't know where they've come from. They're mainly young men from the Middle East to North Africa. But the real problem here is your reaction to them. Because if you were a lot nicer, like we are, because we're this wonderful and smooth, woke elite, if the population's reaction were more positive, then there wouldn't be any problems. And this is the utmost arrogance. It's absolutely outrageous. We have seen some recent murders in Ireland. A Slovak Romani guy was jailed. In fact, there was a shocking killing the year before when an Iranian migrant murdered two Irish gay men, decapitating one of them. And then there was this Slovak Romani guy who was jailed very recently for the murder of a wonderful young teacher, 23-year-old Ashling Murphy. Now, Ashling's wonderful boyfriend, Ryan Casey, made a victim impact statement in court. I'm just going to read it to you about the horrible, horrible man who murdered this wonderful young woman he was in love with. How can someone come to this country, get social housing, social welfare, not hold down a job of any description and never contribute to society for 10 years? This is not the country that Ashling and I grew up in and once loved. It has officially lost its innocence. This country needs to wake up. This time things have got to change. We don't want to see other families go through what we have gone through. This country is simply not safe anymore. I'm afraid our country is heading down a very dangerous path. This is a beautifully spoken young Irish guy speaking out in great sorrow and anger that this good-for-nothing guy who was in, in his country able to strangle to death his beautiful 23-year-old girlfriend, a wonderful teacher loved by all. Now, I should just also say that the population here in the UK is being gaslit, I think, in a similar way. 
So we've had several stories coming into Planet Normal about areas of the country in the UK where there are lots of young migrant males who are causing problems for women. And this is just one I got from a listener in Staffordshire. The situation with the migrants in Cannock is dire, says Jenny. Women cannot go out on the streets alone, especially at night. These males gather around school gates, they follow the girls, and they follow the women around in gangs. They do not speak English, which makes their behaviour all the more alarming. When the police are called, they arrive in cars, take the men back to where the illegal migrants are living. This happens every day. We've written to the council and MPs, and the outcome listen to this, is that anyone who's worried is invited to sessions with the police who tell them there is nothing to be done and that the indigenous population have to alter their behaviour so as not to cause upset amongst the migrant population. Women are advised not to go out alone in the evening and be mindful of the way they are dressed. That's going to get anyone's heckles up, isn't it? That young women have to be mindful of how they dress because of people who've come to the country. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the idea that they can't go out in a pair of shorts and a T-shirt yeah. on a nice summer night, yeah. that's part of what being young is all about, isn't it? Crikey. Yeah. That actually really makes me upset and, and angry thinking of my wonderful... Poor girls. Not so young now. Yeah. Children. We should move on, Alison, because there's so much to say this week. We should just mention the COVID inquiry where Michael Gove for it is he, (laughs) floated the idea that COVID virus may actually be what we call non-zoonotic. It may actually be a man-made virus, which then inadvertently (laughs) escaped from a lab. Planet Normal listeners will know that Richard Dearlove said that to us, the former head of British intelligence, no less, citing extremely highly regarded academic research. He said that to us over three years ago. Mm. The idea that this is some incredible revelation is just for the birds and also quite incredible, and that our brilliant Telegraph colleague Sarah Napson's written a piece about this in the Telegraph on Wednesday. We'll put the link in the show notes to this episode. You had Sir Hugo Keith, KC, public sector now lawyer. Yes. And as Michael Gove, to his credit, floated you know, what's often been described as a, a mad idea, even though so many highly reputable people believe it, that COVID was created in a lab, he actually shut down Mm. the Secretary of State by saying, uh, quite incredibly, oh, oh, don't talk about that. That's a divisive issue. I mean, as Sarah Napton said, it's a bit like having an inquiry into Hillsborough and not talking about how the police acted when Mm. all those dozens of football fans died in the crush. It's a bit like having an investigation into Grenfell and saying, oh, oh, don't discuss the cladding. Uh, because that's a divisive issue. This is exactly what this ridiculous COVID inquiry should be talking about. How was this thing caused and how do we react to it next time we have something like this? And yet it's crazy that that's being closed down. It's particularly ironic, isn't it, given that the COVID inquiry seems to be prepared to address Brexit, racism, austerity, basically. But when it comes to talking about where the virus actually started, and we have to quote Hugo Keith in full, I'm I'm really building up a head of steam against this arrogant Pratt, Liam. It forms no part of the COVID inquiry to address that somewhat divisive issue. (laughs) completely You just can't make it up. But I have to say, I don't actually don't tip my hat to Michael Gove because he, again, yet another of the key players giving evidence and saying, you know, that of course, if we'd locked down earlier, if only we'd locked down earlier, I'm really, really sick of this. And he also said that the virus presented a series of new challenges that required the science to adjust. I mean, what? What does that mean? The science didn't need to be adjusted. I just think it's such a dismal spectacle that the party line they seem to have agreed on is Boris was hopeless if we'd locked down sooner there wouldn't have been any deaths or there would have been far fewer deaths. That is just not true. That's not true. The whole animus of this is an establishment trying to convince the rest of us that lockdown was the right thing to do. We should have done it earlier. Why? Because the costs of lockdown were so massive Mm. and only becoming more apparent every day. The mental health epidemic, you know, kids' lives completely knocked off track. You know, massive lack of cancer referrals, massive excess deaths. It's absolutely 
clear that lockdown was wrong and Sweden were right to any objective person. And the establishment simply won't allow that view to be explored because then they would all be implicated having been so gung ho. And a lot of the media are complicit in this because with one or two very honourable exceptions, as we know, Alison, for most of lockdown, people like us who were sceptical of the idea of locking down, looking closely at what other countries were doing, we were treated as pariahs. And most of the media class was completely complicit in wanting a harder, faster, firmer, longer lockdown. So the media is happy that the COVID inquiry is this damp squib that doesn't Mm. tackle the real issues. And that came to a head with the ridiculous spectacle, as you say, of a taxpayer funded KC stopping the Secretary of State for levelling up from floating the idea or trying to stop him from floating the idea that this was actually a man-made virus. It's interesting, actually, you know, that America, to its great credit, just seems to have better mechanisms of democratic accountability. So not just by our friend Jay Bhattacharya, who's been leading the charge with various legal cases being brought against the government and indeed states of America for their behaviour over lockdown. We've actually seen recently, Liam, regarding what Sir Richard Love told us all those years ago was an engineered escapee from the Wuhan lab we're now seeing stories coming out about Anthony Fauci, who led the American pandemic effort, having deliberately suppressed the links of COVID-19 to that Wuhan lab, because as we've discussed, Americans, among others, I think the French were also involved, Americans were funding the gain-of-function research, which was banned in America under the Obama administration, and which was then being offshored, as it were, to the Wuhan lab. And it seems that one of those, the gain-of-function experiments, I'm, I'm not an expert, but I think it just basically makes viruses more transmissible. So one of these gain-of-function experiments, allegedly funded by Anthony Fauci and various other key players, Peter Danzuk and some of these other people, all up to their necks with the World Health Organization. Surprise, surprise. So this now is coming out in America that Fauci did his best to suppress the story because, of course, it would be immensely embarrassing if a virus which had killed hundreds of thousands of Americans was actually paid for and the development of which was paid for by the United States. Now, they seem to be far ahead of the game. Our COVID inquiry doesn't seem to be taking place in the same historical period. I mean, it's as if all these stories now, which are emerging, which cast the whole episode in a different light. It's as if the, the COVID inquiry is in a little box with everybody with their fingers in their ears going, la, 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 let's not talk about that. So it is an embarrassment. And we did the other week, listeners will remember, we talked to Molly Kingsley. And um, there is momentum, Liam, growing now behind the idea of an alternative COVID inquiry, which would rope in people like Johnson Sumption, Professor Carl Hennigan. And just before we move on, just to say that our fantastic Planet Normal friend and immensely eminent Professor Shinetra Gupta, her views are being misrepresented at this inquiry. Yeah. And she has not been invited to appear. It's completely outrageous. Absolutely outrageous. She is the calmest, most erudite person. And she is furious, Liam. She is really spitting. And even in his evidence, Dominic Cummings said at this famous notorious meeting where Tegnell, Anders Tegnell of Sweden, Carl Hennigan, Shinetra Gupta were pulled into a Zoom call by Boris to talk about alternative ways to approach the pandemic. Now, Dominic Cummings said in his evidence that Tegnell had basically said, oh, please don't do as little as Sweden. And Shinetra Gupta said, nothing of the sort was said. All right. So there's some very, very dodgy things going on there. Hi, I'm Phil Spencer, and I'm here with Telegraph Money, your new complete guide to being better off from saving and investing to pensions and, of course, property. Telegraph Money puts a wealth of expert opinion plus useful tools and calculators right at your fingertips. Explore more from me and our personal finance experts now. Search Telegraph Money today. 
Now let's hear from our latest Planet Normal guest, who's stowed away on the rocket this week. Stephen Pound was a semi-professional footballer, a boxer in the Royal Navy and a bus conductor. A grammar school boy turned Labour councillor, he was Labour MP for Ealing North in West London from 1997 to 2019. Well known for his quick wit and sharp political analysis, Pound has stayed in the public eye since leaving the Commons, regularly appearing on television to comment on politics and in particular on the Labour Party. Having been an assistant whip, Pound also served as a shadow minister for Northern Ireland, but his political career was centred on his role as an Ealing councillor for 16 years before he spent those 21 years in Parliament. A man steeped in Labour Party politics, but independent-minded enough to say what he really thinks, I started by asking Stephen Pound how he got interested in politics in the first place. I got into politics for the wrong reason. I mean, you ask any politician why they got into politics, they will all say with their fingers crossed, you know, I did it to make the world a better place. Um, I looked around me and I saw misery and unhappiness and starvation and poverty. And I decided that I would get into Westminster and make damn sure that that never happened again. I got into politics. I was so damned angry. I was a councillor in Ealing at a time when schools were falling to pieces. There's a young kid called Nianati who was nearly killed when the hopperhead fell off the downspout of a school. And the then MP was completely unsympathetic. And he just said, oh, well, the school should become a, an academy and they get the money. And I thought, well, I, you know, I'm sorry, I'm just not going to sit back and take this. I think there's two sorts of people in this world, Liam. The people who sit on the sofa and scream at the telly and say they're all a bunch of so-and-sos. And the people who actually, like yourself, who actually get out and do something and try to change the weather. So I got in there for the wrong reasons. I got in there because, you know, I was pretty angry with the sitting MP. However, after seven years, I'd managed to get every single primary school in my constituency, bar one, rebuilt mostly by putting an immense amount of pressure on Jim Knight, who was the education guy, and a few, a few other people. I don't know if that answers your question, but it's as close as I can get. I would say your reputation in Parliament, and you were Member of Parliament for Ealing North from 1997 to 2019, so you came in on that kind of wave of Blair euphoria. I'd say your reputation in Parliament is this. Everyone knows you're a really smart guy and you can see around corners in terms of policy. You're always well informed. But are you disappointed, given that huge political talent that you have, that feel you have for public opinion? Is it disappointing to you with respect that you never made ministerial office? You were a shadow minister for Northern Ireland for some time under various Tory leaders, including Ed Miliband, including Jeremy Corbyn. But how do you feel that you didn't become a minister? I don't actually feel all that disappointed because, in all honesty, Lim, every political party is is a group of disparate views and perspectives, and they're all a coalition. If don't care what you are, if you're in a political party, you're in a coalition. But the thing is, I was never entirely comfortable with every single aspect of the Labour Party, but I made the one utterly fatal mistake that I would warn any neophyte member of Parliament against doing, and it haunted me and it cursed me, and it was the albatross on my shoulder for my whole parliamentary career. I made a funny maiden speech. <laughs> you know, to be fair, it, it, it wasn't bad and it was fairly amusing. And it was based around the fact that nothing, because when you do a maiden speech, you, there's certain conventions. You have to be very nice about your predecessor, which you, know, you do. You have to actually say something about the joys and beauties and the unique qualities of this, this sylvan paradise, this earthly elysium that is your constituency. Unfortunately, I couldn't find anything that had happened. An incredible number of things happened just outside, um, like a giant circus elephant, um, you know, staggered down from Harrow on his way to Ealing and died on Castle Bar Hill and is buried there. Van Gogh taught at the uh, the convent uh, just down down the road, but again, just outside the constituency. And the Nolan sisters. I'm in the mood for dancing, romancing, <laughs> with their brown trouser suits. What about the Nolan sisters? Well, they went to Cardinal Wiseman High School. Oh. Sat just outside the constituency. Everything that it was actually good happened just out. And I was just desperate to try to find something, anything that happened um, actually in Ealing North. And uh, ultimately I had to give up. And so I'd made that mistake. Unfortunately, I, I did take a lot of stuff very seriously. Um, and I think the equalisation of the age of consent was one which was a very, very difficult vote for me. But, you know, they supported it. You voted against same-sex marriage, didn't you? I did, yeah, at that time, because I simply couldn't understand how when church attendance is actually declining across the country, there's vast groups of men and women who wanted a religious ceremony because, you know, the marriage in, in the European context is a religious ceremony. It takes place in a mosque or a synagogue or a mandir or a church. And 
I voted enthusiastically for civil partnerships. I mean, crack on, but I simply couldn't understand how essentially a theological construct, you know, that the marriage of a man and a woman should somehow be extended into same-sex marriage. You know, unfortunately, I also voted for Iraq, uh, mostly because Tony Blair made one of the best speeches I'd ever heard, and Cluid made a brilliant speech, and huge numbers of Iraqi constituents came to my surgery, and they said, are you going to, what are you going to do? Are you going to walk by on the other side of the road? Are you going to do nothing? Or are you going to do something? And in hindsight, I should have realised that one of the best things that politician can do is to do nothing. How important is your religion to you, Stephen? When we've talked in the past, I've been surprised to hear that your Catholicism is such a big part of your life. It is. I, I like to think that I'm a Catholic who happens to be an MP rather than an MP who happens to be a Catholic. I mean, it, it is important to me. It's the one point of utter unbreakable, irrefragible stability in my life. You know, there, there's imperfections in, in every structure, but I have to say the Catholic Church provides me with that bedrock. It provides me with that point of reference, that point of stability. And ultimately, Catholic social teaching, I think, motivates my politics more than absolutely anyone since Anarim Bevan. Talking about Labour leaders, you're no longer in the House, but you remain a high-profile commentator. Your views are, are sort widely. How's Keir Starmer getting on? To a certain extent, all he has to do is to sit back and rub his hands together and say, crack on, Tories, you know, start cutting your throats. But here's an interesting thing, Lim. There's a kind of pattern in British politics where you have a very flamboyant Churchill, you know, great flamboyant leader, followed by Attlee, complete opposite. Thatcher, you know, great star, and she's followed by Major. And after Johnson, you see the pattern. So you're saying the country's ready for boring? The country is ready for stability. It's ready for someone who, who is not incontinent and profligate and all the wonderful things that Johnson is. You know, more than anybody else, what really matters in the world, and as we found out in, during the Liz Truss interregnum, is confidence in the fiscal stability, the financial basis of our country. And its standards and pores are more important than any number of uh, constituencies swinging one way or the other. The point I'm trying to make is that you say, you say Keir Starmer is boring. Um, when I worked with him in Northern Ireland, he was the public prosecutor in Northern Ireland. People, as you know, Northern Ireland's a tiny place. Everybody knows everything. We used to talk about him. And somebody said to me, he said, the thing about Keir is that he's brilliant at addressing the judge, but not so great at addressing the jury. There's a smidgen of truth in that. He's got this forensic skill and ability. But on the other hand, I've actually seen him let rip a few times. And if you really want to judge the man, I mean, was it Napoleon said, you, you can only really understand a man if you understand the world he lived in when he was 21. I would recast that and say, you can only really understand a man if you try to mark him on a football pitch. And believe you me, you would not want to get in the way of Keir Starmer, the midfield general. He makes Roy Keane, you know, look like, look like Minnie Mouse. I mean, he's terrifying. He, he's a much, much more interesting person. I mean, they used to say that Liz Truss has hidden hidden shallows. Kia has got considerably considerable depths, which is starting to reveal slightly. He can't sit back and say, well, look, Angela Rayner you know, does the tub-thumping stuff, you know, I, I do the quiet work in the background. Because in politics nowadays, we're in a totally different world. We're, the old certainties, you know, the fact 99% of the people used to vote for the two main parties back in the 50s. We're now in retail politics, we're in pick-and-mix politics. And I'm pretty sure that we're going to end up at the situation in Ireland where you have about, I think it's about 12 or 13 independent TDs in, in the Doyle. And I think we could end up with that. So his personality is becoming much, much more important. And I think Keir's thing at the moment, don't frighten the horses, steady as she goes, Stanley Baldwin type style, will work as long as he's surrounded by some people who are sort of fairly extrovert, you know, the West Streetings, the Angela Rayners and the people like that. But let's compare his front bench, Stephen, that front bench that you came into Parliament with in 1997. Blair's front bench was a lot more impressive, I would say, than Starmer's front bench. Blair's front bench wasn't as left-wing as Starmer's front bench. Blair's front bench had people on it who were national figures already, people like Jack Straw, people like Robin Cook, people like Gordon Brown. Starmer, Reeves, after that, it's pretty ropey. Well, we didn't actually know a lot about David Blunkett and we didn't know a lot about Frank Dobson in those early days. I mean, Alan Milburn is, is, a, is a good example. I mean, Andy Burnham's another good example. No, you know, he wasn't even in the cabinet. Nobody knew Andy Burnham. No, he's a special advisor, wasn't he, to Tessa Jowell at the time? He, he, indeed he was. Yeah, God, you're well briefed, aren't you? Yeah. How about Labour's latest utterances on immigration, saying that they're going to get immigration down to... 200,000. It's currently, you know, six, 700,000 net, isn't it? Do you think that's dangerous waters for the Labour Party to be fishing in? 
dangerous waters it is to be fighting a rigid inflatable boat across the channel and look the numbers game is is poison it, it's absolutely corrosive the minute you start to talk it the minute you put a cap on immigration numbers if say you've got a hundred thousand you know it's at 999 and then some brain surgeon applies and oh no i'm sorry you can't come in because we've hit the numbers it's meaningless look the real problem is the government are looking at this whole immigration issue through the wrong end of the telescope they're looking at you know what happens you know when you've got a great flood of people who, who've rocked up in dover what you need to do is to go back to what we did before, actually do some of the processing in France. We had it in Sangat, where we actually had you know, people processing immigration cases, but also do what the Dutch do. I mean, not elect Gert Wilders, for God's sake, but uh, if you look at what they're doing now, admittedly, most of their immigrants come through ship or airport. They actually process them there and then, and they do not get out of the airport unless they've been approved. The thing, Liv, a lot of the people who do turn up on the, on our shores are people we'd actually want here. We want to get them working. We want to get them paying tax. We want to get them contributing to the economy. What we don't want is for them to be sitting, rotting in hotels somewhere, which is costing us millions, if not billions. I mean, what an absolute farcical waste of money. Look, certain people... We're not going to be able to chuck him out. We can't send somebody back to Tehran. Imagine if we sent somebody back to Kabul or Kandahar. So we can't do that. So let's make the most of what we've got. We're a country built on emigration. We're built on the energy that people bring to us. What we cannot do and what we cannot allow is completely unregulated emigration with all the dangers to national security. And if I can say something that may offend about no more than about 90% of Telegraph readers, we need ID cards here and now, because at the moment, we have no way of knowing who's in this country. We're one of only two European nations that haven't a scooby-doo as to who is living in the country, because there are thousands, if not, I don't know, there might even be more, people completely unregulated, and we should be able to go down to the car wash and say, never mind this, you know, show us your papers, Englander, but just simply say, just check in your ID. What on earth is wrong with that? France, the country that invented chauvinism. Chauvin was a Frenchman. You know, they have ID cards. Every other country except one has ID cards. We need that if we're going to control immigration. But let's look at the problem at the source, not at, at the end of the telescope, at the end of the, of the production line, because that way you lose control completely. You, know, you end up with Lee Anderson saying something quite sensible. You know, why, why on earth do we look to Rwanda when we've got uninhabited islands off the coast of, these, of this island? much more sensible. Has your party finally, Stephen, got a problem when it comes to Israel, Palestine? There's a lot of people very much in the Labour mainstream, shadow ministers who don't agree with the party leadership's firm line on Israel, Palestine. You're right, I'm afraid. I wish you weren't. I wish I was still a sort of a parliamentary hack. I could probably try to argue against that. But look, I'm not going, I'm not going to blow smoke. The reality is that we've lost some decent people. I mean, you know, people like Jess Phillips is as good as they come with Israel-Palestine. Anybody, any person with a, an ounce of humanity in their body, anybody with a sort of the, a, the slightest smidgen of the milk of human kindness has to feel that they want to do something. And marching through the streets of London is a way of expressing that. Unfortunately, it is utterly negative and it's utterly counterproductive. What Jess is doing is saying support medical aid for Palestine, support the idea of a humanitarian pause, support the idea of getting some assistance out there, but above all, make it conditional on a continuation of the Abraham Accords, the one great success, I think, that Donald Trump brought to the table when he was president. They're the kind of commercial deals between Israel and some of the Gulf states, right, which have really led to very, very interesting commercial developments and, and collaboration. Well, more than that, they're probably the reason why Hamas launched that vile, murderous slaughter back in October. What had happened is, under the Abraham Accords, a number of countries, you know, even countries from Algeria to Iraq, Saudi Arabia, various other Arab countries, had finally recognised the existence of the State of Israel. Now, that may seem nothing to us, but in the reality, when you said most of these places like you know, Hamas and Iran, their unique selling point of what, what they've written on the tin is, you know, we exist solely on this earth to destroy Israel. You know, to actually get the countries talking, to get the, the, the Maghreb, get North Africa, to, to get the Middle East, get the Emirates talking and recognizing that was an existential threat to Hamas and Fatah and Hezbollah. But the, the weird thing is that a large number of the Arab states will not help the Palestinians. They could make Palestine, they could make Gaza, they could make the West Bank, heaven on earth, if they gave sort of 0.01% of their GDP to the Palestinians. But they won't. 
they might because to a certain extent it suits some people to have the permanent agonized suffering the bleeding the crying the weeping of the Palestinian people and it supports Hamas because you know Hamas is the agency through which that what little money that does go into Gaza flows. Iran will support Hezbollah and will support various other groups because it is part of their whole purpose in life which is not to feed their people which they're not doing it's not to introduce democracy which they're not doing it's not to give people in one of the most intelligent articulate and sophisticated nations on earth the Iranian people not to give them what they need but to simply distract them by this existential threat, reverting to Napoleon yet again. When he was in trouble, he used to say, we used to create this thing called la patrie en danger, you know, the country's in danger. Look to an external enemy, externalize your problems. Then people don't worry about the internal. We can just say, oh yeah, appreciate people are starving, people are being slaughtered, murdered, executed for not wearing hijabs and God knows what. But look what's outside the boundaries. There's something even worse out there. So let's just forget about our problems and concentrate on the enemy. However, your key question is, does the Labour Party have a problem? I think the nation has a problem. When you have 100,000 people marching through the streets of London, chanting about from the river to the sea and saying Hamas is right and calling you know, conservative politicians coconuts, there's something profoundly wrong there. I mean, what on earth do they think they're doing? You know, They're not calling for the hostages to be released. They're not calling for a two-state solution. They're not calling for re- you know, proper negotiations. They're calling for the extinction of the Israeli people. And are there really that many people who feel that way? I was quite cheered and, and by the, the, the counter-march, if you like, that took place this weekend, the anti-Semitism march, which was incredibly well-behaved. And I remember, you know, one of the police officers said, he said, this is getting rather boring. He said, we haven't had any trouble all day. And I said, well, you probably won't get the trouble because there are some people, again, remember what Yates said, the best lack all conviction, but the worst are full of a terrible intensity. It's a brilliant quote. Stephen Pound on that bombshell. Great to have you with us on Planet Normal. Thanks so much. Thank you, mate. Cheers. So there you have it, Alison. Former Labour MP Stephen Pound. He's a pretty influential commentator these days. He obviously wants a Labour victory. He obviously thinks Keir Starmer's doing a pretty good job, even though he's rebelled against his own party quite a lot in the past, Stephen Pound. I really enjoyed that interview. Isn't it interesting? Once they're not in Parliament, a sort of different kind of personality comes out. He sounded, Stephen sounds like just the kind of person you'd love to go and have a drink with. Very funny, very mischievous, very acute analysis. I mean, I I loved him saying that the Starmer might as well just sit there and watch while the other bloke screws it up, really. (laughs) Yeah, but fascinating. And I still think your point, Liam, is well made, which is that that great sort of Tony Blair intake of front benches in 1997 was a real cut above what we're looking at now, even though Stephen Pound says Starmer is a, a sort of deeper and more interesting character than we've yet had a chance to see. I think that's right. That Labour front bench in the mid to late 90s that came into office, you know, you had the likes of Jack Straw, Gordon Brown, Robin Cook, Mo Molum. These were major political figures anyway. They just managed to break through in opposition more than Keir Starmer's front bench has, as indeed Tony Blair had. I think the reputation of those front benchers was really spearheaded by Blair as the public became more interested in him as when he was shadow Home Secretary from the mid-90s. And the idea that Labour were going to win and were going to win big became rooted in the nation's consciousness. There was a real interest in the kind of people who Blair would be bringing in with him. And there isn't that interest at the moment because Starmer himself just isn't generating the same amount of enthusiasm. You get the strong impression that a Labour government would happen because it's not the Tory government, not because people actually want Starmer and want his front benches. And I think Stephen Pound understands that. And I think he also understands that the, what Starmer is likely to do, he's going to be like the you know the gorilla on the tightrope with the Ming vase. And the only thing to do is to get across while holding the vase and not fall off the tightrope. Labour are going to say as little as they possibly can between now and the general election. But just as a mark or further mark of Rishi Sunak's failure, Starmer is now outflanking him on immigration, Liam. I mean, this is we're in the realms of fantasy here, aren't we, with Labour promising to reduce immigration to 200,000. And I just think it says it all, really, doesn't it, that the Conservatives' traditional strengths of the economy and immigration 
now less trusted than Labour. I was interested in Stephen Pound's comments on the Palestinian pro-Palestine marches, actually, which have grabbed headlines. I mean, I'm now thinking, are the police really going to allow them to go on over the Christmas period when families come up to the capital, don't they, for a bit of tea and some shopping? And that's going to have a huge, huge effect on retailers. But it'd be interesting to see whether they will actually tell the organisers that they have to stick in the park. But, oh, before we move on, Nolan Sisters, bit of a reprise, come on. I'm in the mood for dancing, romancing and giving it all tonight. <laughs> they made the trouser suit famous, didn't they? Why, why are you mentioning the Nolan sisters? Because you sang to him. Oh, of course. I know. Of course I did. Of course I did. Of course. Anyway, that's lovely. But just to mention, as you said at the top, that I did go on the Sunday's march against anti-Semitism. And a huge thank you to all the absolutely lovely Planet Normal listeners who turned up, including the gentleman so towering that I had to jump atop a statue to feature in a selfie with him. Please do email (laughs) me because it was lovely to meet you. And I just to say, Liam, that it was incredibly, it was a, a sort of parody of peacefulness. It was lovely. Many of us hadn't been on a demonstration for a long time, but one elderly Jewish man did come up and clasp my hand and he kept saying, this shouldn't be necessary, this shouldn't be necessary and I think that's exactly right we were just there really because we don't like any of our fellow citizens feeling that they are too afraid to move around London there was one quote actually from a a Jewish woman called Heidi Backram and she summed up the day beautifully for me we haven't felt a solid sense of groundedness for six weeks it's been one fall into the abyss after another Today, it felt like a hand reached down and grabbed ours. And maybe there's a chance we can start climbing back out of the dark. Thank you, Britain. I thought that was absolutely, absolutely lovely. Now on to our listener emails. Your messages sent to planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Please keep them coming. We love to read your thoughts. The citizens of Planet Normal. This is a very special email, Liam, we're starting off with, because as the COVID inquiry continues with almost everyone agreeing we should have locked down sooner and very few mentioning the dire consequences of lockdown, I thought we'd try and rectify that here on Planet Normal. People might find this quite upsetting. This is from Rick. Hi, Alison and Liam. My 82-year-old mother has been an avid listener to your podcast since inception. You've helped her to stay sane throughout the COVID era. Mum badgering me about how good your weekly podcasts were persuaded me to also become one of your avid listeners. I never miss an episode. I've pondered for the past three years whether sharing the circumstances of my own father's COVID era death would be of any interest to anyone. But as the COVID inquiry is well underway, I thought it timely that I should share the experience that my father, my sisters and I suffered. As an aside, my father died of natural causes, not of, with or from COVID. In April 2020, my father, who was 83 years old at the time, was admitted to Salford Royal Hospital. I have two sisters who fortunately look very much alike and they live closer to the hospital than I do. So they took it in turns to visit dad during peak COVID lockdown. Restrictions prevented a patient having numerous visitors. Of course, back then, most of us were adhering to the protocols in place for the greater good of everyone. I did likewise, even though I was desperate to see my dying father. Alas, I got the call from one of my sisters that dad didn't have long left. We agreed I would visit him alone the next morning. 9am on Tuesday the 12th of May 2020, I arrived to an almost deserted Salford Royal Hospital, masked up, hand sanitised. I wandered the corridors almost alone. I found the ward. The doors were locked. I knocked and waited. A nurse opened the door. Yes, she said. I introduced myself and asked to be able to see my father in his final hours. No, she said. Only your sister is allowed to see him. I was completely taken aback and it took me some seconds to realise from the harsh, abrupt and unapologetic tone that she wasn't joking. I asked her again, explaining I had sacrificed not visiting in the weeks prior in order to assist with the pandemic effort, to do the right thing, keeping contact to a minimum, take the pressure off the NHS. 
but I desperately hoped now she could find a way to accommodate me in seeing my father for the final time. No, sorry, hospital policy, only one name visitor per patient. You are clearly not your sister. Now I'm sorry, must I must get back to the ward. The nurse turned around, walked back through the door, and it slammed behind her. Only then did it dawn on me that the nurses thought my two sisters were one and the same person. I paced the corridor, knowing my father was literally just metres away from me on the other side, and I wasn't allowed to see him. I knocked again. Eventually the door opened, and the same nurse plus a male colleague came out. I pleaded with them to allow me in just for a few minutes. Although the nurse was having none of it, her male colleague agreed to seek advice from a senior within the ward. Eventually, the same pair plus an obviously senior female nurse manager came out. Once again, I begged. I showed as much sympathy for their position as I could, praised them for their heroic efforts in the pandemic, sugar-coated my appreciation for their sterling selfless commitment and said, could I just please come in to see my father for a few minutes for the last time? Hallelujah, it worked. The senior nurse said yes. It then came out with the devastating words that broke me in two. But now you will be the only named visitor allowed in to see your father. Your sister will not be allowed in again. The three of them turned, started to walk through the ward door and held it open for me. I stood rooted to the spot, just a metre away from entering the promised land and being able to see my dad in his dying hours. I can't do that to my sister, I said quickly realising not to give the game away that they were two lookalike sisters. Surely you're not asking me to make a split-second decision between my father and my sister. Surely this cannot be the policy of the hospital. The response was as rigid and intransigent as ever. You need to decide because we are very busy and in the middle of a pandemic, the senior woman replied. I can't do that to my sister, I said. My eyes stinging with tears, I could barely get my final words out. Could you please tell my dad I came to see him? I couldn't get any more words out. My mouth just wouldn't work. The ward doors shut firm. I walked back out into the sunshine, got to my car, and after an hour or so of slumped numbness, headed home. My father died two days later. He died wondering why his eldest child and only son hadn't been to see him when he needed me most in his final hours. Thank you, Boris. Thank you, Hancock. Thank you, Sage and Witty and Valance and Neil Ferguson. Thank you, all those faceless advisors in Downing Street. Thank you, NHS. Thank you, Salford Royal Hospital. I will never forget nor forgive you for what you did to my father in his final hours. He must have died a devastated man, believing his only son had deserted him on his deathbed. I will never comply again. Experiences like my father's and in many cases much worse likely won't get aired at the COVID inquiry. Gove, Hancock and co with their regrets that the measures taken weren't stringent enough or soon enough will win the day. Only Boris will get the blame. None of them cared about my father or my sisters or me. None of them cared about so many others like us. They should be forced to listen to the testimony of those whose lives they devastated with their draconian, incoherent, inconsistent and often balmy diktats. As for the hand-picked mainstream media favourites at the nightly press conferences, whose questions were lame and irrelevant, hang your heads in shame. Not a single one asked pertinent questions that men of us were screaming at our TVs. All you wanted was a gotcha moment to create headlines and boost your ego. Well, you've got your month of fame to dine out on for decades. Disgraceful. Thank you, Alison and Liam, for all your efforts throughout the past few years. The career risks you must have taken, your calm reason, truth-seeking. You've kept people like my mum sane. And you've aired and shared the experiences of thousands of people like us who would otherwise have thought they were totally alone. Keep up the great work, Rick. Blimey. It's good to remember, Liam, isn't it? You know, we unbelievable. I mean, the absolute inhumanity of, of what went on, really. Unbelievable. What an email. After that incredible email from Rick, this is from Gareth. Attached is an analysis of the sudden spike in cancer deaths in the UK in 2022. The first attachment is one of the most important graphs from the analysis. There is one caution on the figures in that not all of the causes of death from the year have yet been determined. So the figures could change somewhat. But 16 standard deviations is a huge shift, says Gareth. My background is in physics and I know nothing of oncology, no personal experience, thankfully, but these calculations look thorough to me. 
We sent Gareth's analysis, didn't we, Alison, to Professor Carol Sikora. Yes, we did. One of the UK's top oncologists, former Planet Normal guest, of course. And Carol replied along the following lines. I'm in Bahrain looking at their new cancer centre. It's better than anything I've seen in Britain and the NHS. They just don't know how good it is. No 62-day target from diagnosis to treatment. One week is the maximum allowed delay. Yes, this data from Gareth is exactly what we expect because of the stay home, protect the NHS propaganda, says Professor Carol Sakura. The excess deaths will appear first in younger people as they tend to have more aggressive cancers than the old. We know already there was upstage migration from 2020 to 2022, and it will probably be for at least the first six months of 2023, but the data is not in yet to the cancer registries. My prediction is that excess cancer deaths will begin slowly in 22-23 as reported and peak around 26-27 as some tumours are slow to metastasize. In other words, much worse is yet to come. Why doesn't the COVID inquiry ask the questions like this? Who cares about the tittle-tattle from minor politicians? The paper Gareth cites is not peer-reviewed, I'm pretty sure, but it looks like ONS data has been used. It's the harbinger of a tsunami of cancer deaths that's coming, and we still have backlog problems, as you know. All the best, Carol. Just to say, Liam, that's exactly what the inquiry should be talking about. Absolutely. Thousands and thousands of excess cancer deaths among, you know, we talked to John recently, who discovered he'd got stage four bowel cancer, by the way, to everyone who kindly donated to John's funding page. He's just had his operation recovering from that. So we'll bring an update on his progress, but they're going to be huge loss of life. And they are literally sitting there with Hugo Keith QC, ruling out questions of, of serious importance. This is from James. Dear Alison and Liam, thank you for your work on Planet Normal, bringing us thought-provoking discussions and insight each week. Thanks also to the producers working behind the scenes. Yay! Yay! Uh, Isabel, Cass, everybody, Louisa. The top three issues in the UK, says James, are the economy, health and immigration, according to YouGov. After 13 years of Conservative government, at least two of the three are in worse shape than before. I'll leave the economic assessment to you, Liam. The UK is a democracy, so who can we vote for instead? One look at Labour shows they will hardly be better, but the other options are completely untested and minor parties such as Reform or the SDP. As such, we've seen many previous Tory voters staying home and not voting. Labour did not win those seats. The Conservatives lost them. With this in mind, says James, I'd like to introduce a word into the Planet Normal Dictionary. Latibulate, 17th century Latibulate, to hide in a corner in an attempt to escape reality. <laughs> That's a brilliant word that we need to bring back into use. The question is, what will happen when we stop hiding in a corner? <laughs> Wishing you both well. James, we should be adding that to orthogonal to the orthodoxy. Latibulate, <laughs> to hide in a corner like Rishi Sunak. An attempt to escape reality. Very good. One of my favourite words that's dropped out of use, Alison, it's more of an American English word, though it was used in the UK a bit in the mid-19th century, and it's this, snollygoster. <laughs> and a snollygoster is a kind of unscrupulous, unprincipled politician on the take, somebody who's they're always looking after number one. A snollygoster in kind of Tammany Hall US politics in the mid and late 19th century, as we approach the Gilded Age, mm -hmm. that was often used in the US press as a sort of term for a sleazy politician, snollygoster. Isn't it fabulous? It's a great word, isn't it? This is from Marcus about our autumn statement coverage last week, of course, Alison, when we welcomed the excellent Ben Wright, who's one of the Telegraph's top business writers. Dear co-pilots, just to say, last week's podcast helped me understand our Chancellor's budget and you gave, both have the gift of explaining it in terms I can understand. Thank you. It seems we may well be a few hundred quid better off this year, but actually we won't. Having got bored with BBC presenters, my wife and I now only watch Netflix and Amazon Prime. I get my news from The Telegraph, The Spectator, The Mail and The Sun. Oh no, he's one of them, I hear you think. However, after years of being a fan of the Today programme and subscribing to The Economist, I'm simply fed up with the one-sided reporting. 
Sorry I'm rambling, but I genuinely feel a certain level of anxiety about our country and where it's headed. So please keep up the good work. Your informed and intelligent discussions interjected with humour and laugh-out-loud moments with interesting guests are of great value to me. Not forgetting Bob the Bard's poems. (laughs) Best wishes, Marcus. And on that bombshell, that's it from Planet Normal for another week as we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reason views. Email of the week, it's my turn. It has to be Rick. An incredible email, Alison. You were right to read it out at length. Rick, we're so sorry for your trouble, but well done you for sharing it with the rest of us. And also to Rick and to Rick's mum, who I know is an absolutely stalwart Planet Normal listener. We're sending you all our love. So, Rick, email us, planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk, put in the subject heading of the email, mug winner, send us your home address, and we'll send you a rare as rocking horse poo Planet Normal mug. So some breaking news. This coming Sunday, it's a special day in the calendar for us. It's the Telegraph Christmas Charity Appeal 2023. Four absolutely brilliant causes. Marie Curie, RAF Benevolent Fund, Race Against Dementia and Go Beyond, which um, sounds a fantastic charity giving breaks in the countryside to children who live in you know, terrible circumstances with domestic violence, bereavement and poverty and so on. It's always a really uplifting day. A co-pilot and I will be there scoffing mince pies and wearing reindeer antlers and (laughs) generally making merry with you on the phone and also marvelling at the incredible generosity of Telegraph fleet readers, even in the most difficult cost of living times. Last year's grand total, Liam, was £726,000. Amazing. And we're really hoping to hit a marvellous million this time. So every donation is hugely appreciated. So Liam and I will be there between 10 and 5, and all you have to do to speak to us is ring, take a pen and a piece of paper. It's 0151 Two eight four one nine two seven. I'll repeat that. It's zero one five one two eight four one nine two seven. Please ring. Give anything you can, and it'd be absolutely lovely to talk to you in person. And you can get that number also on the Telegraph website and in the newspaper. So if you enjoy Planet Normal, please do leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And as we speed away from our beloved planet Normal and the madness of Planet Earth, comes back into view. Thanks as ever to our producers Isabel Bajard, Cass Ho and Louisa Wells. Stay safe and in touch with us and with each other. Until next week, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.